Father, we're reminded in, in the words of that song that we are all uh, debtors to grace if we are here this morning and we have turned from our sin and we have put our trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Lord, you have lavished your grace upon us. You have forgiven us of all of our sin, past, present, and future, Lord. Uh, you have showered us with your grace, Lord. We can never repay you for what you've done for us and you don't want us to even try. You want us to simply um, be thankful to you for what you've accomplished for us, Lord. And, and we ought to be motivated by that grace um, to live the rest of our lives for you, not for ourselves, but for you to make you known and to uh, seek that others would come to know you and experience the grace that we've experienced. And so, Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you would equip us um, so that we can uh, be more grateful to you and so that we can be uh, better witnesses to others of that grace that you have lavished upon us, we pray. So, Lord, please be with, with us as we hear your word. Um, place a guard over my mouth so that I would not add anything to your word or take anything from it, uh, but may your word be explained faithfully, and Lord, help us to believe it and to obey it, believing it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in 1 Corinthians this morning. Last Sunday, we did an overview of the whole book, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, which we read for our call to worship, so I won't read that again but I'll read it as we work through it. And just in studying this passage and thinking how to introduce it, um, how to prepare our minds uh, to study this, I was thinking uh, about how we treat one another. And how we treat one another says a lot about how well we understand the grace of God. And if I clearly understand that I deserve God's wrath and hell because of my sin, but that God in Christ has forgiven me of that unfathomable debt. If I have a good grasp of that, if I'm focused on that, then I will be quick to forgive the comparatively tiny debts that others may have built up against me by their sinning against me. It will be no big deal for me to forgive them when I consider how much I have been forgiven by God. And it's when I forget that, when I fail to understand the grace that has been shown to me, it is then that I stop loving God. He who has forgiven much loves much. And if I forget how much I've been forgiven, I will not love much. And not only will I not love God much, I will not love my brother, and my sister in Christ much. And that is what has happened to these believers in the city of Corinth. They had begun to forget how gracious God had been to them. And in fact, the grace that they had been given, they began to take credit for that grace, for those gifts that God gave. They began to think that they were responsible for their giftedness. And that resulted and them becoming walking contradictions. They had become loveless Christians. And those two words, loveless and Christian, they do not belong together. 
And so at the outset of this letter, Paul seeks to remind these believers of who they are in Christ, of what God has done for them, what he is doing for them, and what he will do for them. And not only that, but he seeks to model for them what a believer's attitude toward other believers ought to be. And in the very first couple of verses, he begins to accomplish this. He shows us what God's call upon our lives is and what effect that should have upon us as we live our lives. And so that's the first point of our message this morning in verses 1 through 2, that as we study these verses, we will see that we need to recognize our call in Christ. And the chief thing that we need to recognize is that when God has called us, we cannot stay the same. The nature of the call of God upon our lives means that I cannot remain the same. He's called me out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And a citizen of Satan and a citizen of King Jesus, they will behave differently. So let's look at verse 1. Paul says, he introduces himself, he says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So Paul introduces himself. He's the one writing this letter and he lets us know that he's not alone. He has a brother with him named Sosthenes. And last week we read Acts 18 that showed us how the church in Corinth got started. And you may remember the name Sosthenes because the Jews remember because of the preaching of Paul, they grabbed Paul, they brought him before the judge in Corinth, a proconsul named Gallio, and Gallio refused to hear their case. And when he refused to hear their case, the Jews turned on the leader of the synagogue whose name was Sosthenes. And we're not told why they turned on him. It may be because he was defending Paul, but this very well may be the same brother but we don't know for sure because Sosthenes was a common name back then. But anyways, back to Paul. How does Paul identify himself in this first verse? He says that he is Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. What is an apostle? We throw that, that word around a lot, but apostle is a messenger. It is an envoy. An apostle is someone who is sent by an authority in order to deliver that authority's message. And according to verse 1, who is Paul's authority? He's the apostle of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is his authority. And did Paul appoint himself to be the messenger of Jesus? No, it says, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And we read about that call in Acts 26. So God called Paul to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why is Paul bringing this up? Is he trying to throw his weight around? Is he saying, you better listen to me? No, that's not what he's doing. He's, by saying this, he's letting these believers know that what he's about to say in this letter are not his ideas. They're not his opinions. It's not his agenda that he's trying to push. What he has written is instead the very message of Jesus Christ, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. 
And not only are, are the Corinthians to sit up and take notice of that, but us today, 2,000 years later, reading this letter, we are to sit up and take notice that this is the message of Christ to us. And being that kind of message, are we free, once we read this, are we free to disregard it? No, we're not, because our king has sent this message to us, and we must listen. He goes on in verse 2 to communicate who he's writing to. He says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, when Paul opens up this letter, he doesn't address his readers with a throwaway line. He doesn't say, hey, how are things going with you guys? And you might expect that. That's what we do when we write a letter. There's some uh, conventions that we observe as we write to somebody. We get those out of the way to get to the good stuff. But no, Paul is even here communicating truth to this church. He's reminding them of who they are. You'd say, they know who they are. Well, no, they don't. They've forgotten who they are. Paul is reminding them of who they are. He says, they are the church of God. The church of God. They are a church who belongs to God. Now remember what Corinth was. Corinth was a Roman colony. Corinth belonged to Rome. They were under the authority of Caesar. But here, Paul is reminding them that their allegiances have changed. They belong to a higher authority now. They belong to God. God possesses them. Their allegiance is to him. It's to Christ now. And also notice that just as Paul was called by God to be something, he says in verse 2 that these believers, they also have been called by God to be something. He says they have... Uh, been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. Called as saints. The Greek word for saint and the Greek word for sanctified, they share the same root, the same idea. And it, the idea is being set apart, being taken from something and set up, be set apart to be devoted to something else. They have been transferred from under the rule of Caesar, ultimately speaking, and they have been transferred under the rule of Jesus Christ. They are saints. They are set apart ones. And just as Paul, being called as an apostle, was not free to do what he wanted, not free to say what he wanted, so these believers called as saints, they also are not free to do whatever they want. They have an authority that they are to submit to. And notice, they're not alone in their calling. They are not the only church. He says that they are saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. They are all together, the church, the worldwide church, they are those who call on the name of the Lord. And if you have a good handle on the Old Testament, you might be remembering a phrase that often pops up in the Old Testament. And it is this phrase, call on the name of the Lord. The Old Testament believers were marked 
by this phrase. They were those who called on the name of the Lord. For example, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 4, this is the first instance of this phrase, and it gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. Speaking of one of Adam's sons, verse 26, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's Lord, all capital letters. That stands for the name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. That is who they were calling upon. And in the New Testament, this phrase gets applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the incarnate God whom believers are to call upon. So what is a saint? Is a saint a super spiritual person who's done at least two miracles and has been approved by the Roman Catholic Church to be a saint? No. A saint is someone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, calls on Jesus for salvation, calls on him for deliverance from sin, calls on his name to praise him, calls on his name to give him thanks, calls on his name to proclaim him to others. And that is what we've been doing this morning. We've been calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. That is what makes a saint a saint, a holy one, a set-apart one. So we need to recognize that that is the call of God upon our lives. And that's the start of knowing how to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ and to not become prideful because we remember from where we came. When we come to verse 3, we find a greeting from Paul. And this was a standard convention in first century letters. There would always be a greeting. And like our letters today, where we often write, Dear so-and-so, they are often just a canned phrase to get out of the way. But even here in this greeting, Paul infuses it with meaning. And this greeting reminds us of what we are to be resting in, what we are to be standing upon as believers. And that's the second point of our message this morning, that we are, as we look at verse 3, we will be compelled to rest in the grace and peace of God and Christ. Rest in the grace and peace of God and Christ. What does Paul say in verse 3? He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Paul is not just saying grace to you and peace. He's saying grace to you and peace from someone. So this greeting is coming from someone. And it's not only coming from Paul. Ultimately, who is this greeting coming from? Who is pronouncing grace and peace over this congregation? It's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is an apostle. He's the messenger delivering this message, this letter from God to this church. And as such, there is power in this greeting. This is not merely a wish for these believers. This is a pronouncement of what's real, what's true. You know, we, when we say goodbye to someone 
or greet someone, we often say, have a good day. But it's just a wish. We have no power to accomplish that for that person. But when God pronounces upon us his people grace and peace, it's not just a wish. That is reality for us. If you are a believer in Christ, a saint, grace and peace is the very air that you breathe. Grace and peace is the ground that you stand upon. Grace and peace is the reality in which you live. Your God, your Father, has lavished his grace upon you, his unmerited favor. And not only that, but your Lord Jesus has made you to be at peace with this God. He has reconciled you to your heavenly Father. This verse tells us, it implies to us that every moment of every single day, your heavenly Father and your Lord Jesus are permeating and flooding every aspect of your life with their grace and their peace. By the grace of God and through the peace of God, the Father and the Son are forgiving your sin. They are enabling you to obey the scriptures. They are sustaining your faith and they are carrying you to heaven. You are surrounded, you are clothed in the grace and the peace of God. And you might not feel like that is happening. This is not a feeling, this is a reality. Whether you feel it or not, this is your reality as a believer. And you are to rest in the grace and the peace of God. And as you read this letter, do you think the Corinthian believers needed the grace and the peace of God? Yes, they did. And so do we. And thank God it is a reality for us. And this was a reality that Paul recognized for himself. He did not take the grace of God or the peace of God for granted. And because he didn't take it for granted, that affected how he interacted with other believers. It radically changed who he was and how he was. You'll remember 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Peter, or Paul there, he says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul knew how much grace God had lavished upon him. And when we come to verses 4 through 7, we see how this reality, how this truth changed the way that Paul looked at people and treated people. And we see how it should change us. When we recognize the grace of God for us, that should cause us, like it caused Paul, to do what is our third point, to recognize God's grace upon our brother or our sister in Christ. We should, if we're recognizing God's grace upon us, we should be quick to recognize the grace of God upon our brother and our sister in Christ. So look at verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul tells these believers that he's doing what for them? He's continually thanking God for them. Now, if you were to read this whole letter before reading the greeting, and you were to guess what Paul might say in the greeting, what he might say, uh, what he's doing in regard to these Corinthians, you would not expect him 
to say, I'm thankful for you always. You would expect him to say, I complain about you guys always. You are so messed up. I'm constantly bewildered at your behavior. But that's not what he says. He is thankful. What is he thankful for? He says, I am thankful always for you for the grace of God which was given you. Yes, these Corinthians are a mess, but how does their current situation compare to their situation before they knew Christ? Is it not infinitely better? So does, in reality, does Paul have nothing to be thankful for? No, he has much to be thankful for. Whatever shortcomings they may have now, at the very least, they are no longer dead in their sin. They are no longer enemies of God. They are no longer without hope in this world. And so Paul has much to be thankful for regarding these troubled brothers and sisters. And that's a lesson for us. And that's a convicting one for me. Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ who you know are struggling with sinful patterns in their life? Do you have a brother or sister in Christ who makes life difficult for you? Maybe you cannot stand being in the same room with them. But when you think of this person, do you give thanks to God for them? Or instead, do you complain and grumble and gossip about them? Because you need to thank God for them. And not just once. It's not a box on a list that you can just check off. Oh, I thank God for them. Now I can get back to gossiping about them. Because how often did Paul give thanks for these believers? What does he say in verse 4? I thank my God always. Every chance he got. And so every chance you get to grumble about this troublesome brother or sister, you should instead take that as an opportunity to give thanks to God for that brother or that sister. And if you refuse to thank God for them, then you know what? You may be that kind of brother or sister that someone else is struggling not to grumble about. You are just like the Corinthians. And how often are we just like them? Now you might say, Josh, I have no idea what to thank God for about the, this person. I, I, I would rack my brain for an eternity and not come up with anything to thank God for. Well, we already saw that that's not true. You can be thankful for what about them? That God has rescued them. It's not just what good they're doing for you that you are thankful about. It's being thankful for what God has done for them. He saved them. Can you be thankful for that at the very least? And if you refuse to be thankful about that regarding this person, then you need to carefully consider whether or not you are still under the wrath of God yourself. Because Jesus warned in Matthew 6, verse 15, he said, But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Bitterness is dangerous. Paul goes on in verses 5 through 7 
And in these verses, he does not simply speak generally about what he's thankful for. We don't get a pass. We can't just say, thank you, God, for this person, and then move on. No, Paul gets specific. He's forced to think about it, to be sincere in what he's thankful about regarding these believers. He's very specific. What does he say? Verse 5, what, how did this grace of God manifest itself? This grace that he's thankful for, how did it manifest itself in these believers? He says that, verse 5, in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And we'll stop right there. Now, when you read the rest of this book, it will shock you, and you compare with what he's thankful for regarding these believers, you'll find that the areas that Paul gives thanks for in these believers' lives are the very areas where they are struggling the most. Verse 5, what does he thank God for? That they were enriched in Christ. How? In all word and knowledge. Word and knowledge. Then verse 6 tells us that when Paul brought the gospel, when he brought the testimony of Christ to them, God was confirming that message. And how was he confirming that message? Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. We see the same thing in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, where the preacher there, he talks about how the how the gospel was proclaimed and God confirmed that message. How did he do it? By testifying by signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Spirit. In the early days of the church, the message of the gospel was confirmed by these miraculous signs. And the letter, this first letter to Corinth was written very early on in the life of the church. And so when Paul brought the gospel, God confirmed the preaching of this message by pouring out gifts upon this congregation. And we find out in the rest of the letter the various gifts that, that, those, uh, that those were. And it's these very things that Paul is giving thanks for to God. But it's also these very things that these believers were abusing. They're misusing these gifts. They are perverting these gifts. They are harming one another and dishonoring God with these gifts. They're taking pride in these gifts. They're congratulating themselves for these gifts. For example, go to chapter 4 and verse 7. You see their attitude about this, this speech and this knowledge and these gifts that God has given them. What is their attitude that Paul is seeking to pop the balloon of? Verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Speaking of this giftedness. Then turn over to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Concerning this knowledge that they've been given. Verse 1, Paul writes, chapter 8, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge you know, cut off from any understanding of the grace of God, knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Then further down in that chapter to verse 10, continuing this idea of knowledge, Paul says, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. That's not why God blessed them with knowledge, not to be used like that. And then we won't go there, but chapters 12 through 14 describe the manifold gifts that they had been given, but that they were abusing, that they were um, placing a misplaced priority upon. And yet these are the very things that Paul gives thanks for. And that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But what Paul understands is that the gifts that God gave these believers, they are good gifts. The problem is not with the gifts. The problem is with how these believers are using their gifts and their attitudes toward these gifts because they have stopped being enamored with Christ and they have become instead enamored with their gifts. Remember what Jesus said to the apostles after he had sent them out to proclaim the kingdom, the good news, and he had given them authority to heal diseases and cast out demons. When they came back, what were they rejoicing about? That, oh, cool, I can drive a demon out. But what did Jesus say? He said, don't rejoice that you have authority to drive out demons, but instead rejoice about what? That your names are written in heaven. We don't rejoice in the gift. We rejoice in the giver. But these believers have stopped doing that. And you'll notice in these first nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus ten times. Verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus. We're back in chapter 1. Verse 2, uh, these believers have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The end of that verse, they call in the name of our Lord Jesus. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, in everything you were enriched in him, speaking of Jesus. Verse 6, the testimony concerning Christ. Verse 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, they will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 speaks of being called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's no accident. He is forcing these believers to get their eyes back on Jesus and not on their gifts. It's as if he's sitting them down, he's looking them in the eye, and he's saying, listen, the Christian life is not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and helping others to know him. It's not about making yourself look good. It's about making Christ look good. And Paul knows that if these believers repent, then those good gifts will be used for the glory of God. And Christ will again be exalted appropriately in their lives. You see, there is glorious potential in every single believer even the troublesome ones, which we all are at various times of our lives, potential to exalt Christ 
through the gifts that God has given us. And that's true even of that person who rubs you the wrong way. So rather than grumble about that individual, instead we ought to thank God for God's gracious gift to that person. And we should pray that God would grant them repentance in that area of their life and help them to use that gift for his glory again. And we ought to encourage that person in that. Not to become, we, we ought not to become bitter against them. And a great example of this is Peter. Think about how Peter is portrayed in the Gospels. Now think about what others may have said about Peter behind his back or maybe to his face. That Peter man, he's always running his mouth. Yap, yap, yap. Even when he doesn't understand what's going on, he's just got to say something. And he's always barging out in front, leaping before he looks. I wish he would just put a cork in it and take a back seat for once in his life. Let somebody else take the lead. That's probably what many were saying. But wasn't it God who graciously gave Peter the gift of leadership? I want you to turn to Matthew 16, where we see Peter use this gift for the glory of God, and then immediately after, he uses it wrongly. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Here we see Peter leading and speaking and communicating knowledge in an appropriate way, a God-glorifying way. But then look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside. There he goes, leading, taking initiative, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. There, Peter began to use his leadership abilities not for the glory of God anymore, but for himself, for the purposes of the world, and unbeknownst to him, the purposes of Satan. Now we know God eventually matured Peter, didn't he? 
and enabled Peter to consistently use the gifts that God gave him for the glory of Christ instead of for himself. And I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, because there we see that Peter learned this lesson, and he was able to turn around and teach others what he had learned. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And here's the key, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it, how? In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What are some examples? Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That is, take special care that you are exercising your gift in accordance with who God is and what he says in this, word, in this book here. He goes on, um, whoever, let me read it again, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Why ought we to exercise, to employ our gifts in this manner? So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. God gives us gifts not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify his Son, Jesus there is no greater abuse of the grace gifts of God than to use it for yourself instead of for the Lord, instead of for your brother or sister in Christ. So, we should pray for one another when we see each other abusing the gift that God has given us. And we should pray that God would enable that brother or sister, and even you as you see yourself abusing that gift, pray for yourself that God would help you to use it and the way that God intends for you to use that. And that brings us to our last point. And I got kind of wordy on this outline. I apologize for that. But this last point, verses uh, the second half of 7 through 9, and it is this, rest with your brother in your fellowship together with Christ. Rest with your brother in your fellowship together with Christ. Recognize you're both headed at the same place. You're going to have to spend eternity with this person. Don't be bitter toward them. What does Paul say? Verse 7 again. After he says, after he's thankful that they're not lacking in any gift, how does he describe them? He describes them as awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see there that Paul is confident about how these believers are going to end up. And again, if you read the rest of this letter, you're mystified as to how in the world Paul can have any confidence of how these believers are going to end up. They seem to be standing on a precipice. This verse, these verses here testify to the reality 
of justification by grace through faith alone and not by works. Despite these believers' many stumblings into sin, they will not be condemned on the day of the Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will see that we're not all that different from the Corinthians. We're pretty messed up ourselves. We have all those besetting sins that try as we might. We just can't seem to shake. They keep coming back. Now, we don't comfortably sit in our sin. We don't pursue our sin. That would indicate that we don't really believe in Jesus at all. But as we strive to turn from these sins, we seem to find that victories are far and few between, and that can worry us. But these verses, 7 through 8, remind us that on that day, when we stand before the judgment bench, the judgment seat of God, God will judge us not based on our own merits, but will judge us based upon the merits of Christ. We will be found blameless, we will not stand there with any chargeable offense because Jesus has paid it all and God has wrapped us in the robe of righteousness that his son wove by his righteous life and his atoning death. That is a truth that we all ought to dwell on when we get discouraged by our repeated stumblings into sin. And when we dwell on that truth, we will be, as these believers were in the second half of verse 7, we will be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus because we know that on that day we will finally be totally free from the presence of sin in our lives and we will enjoy his presence forever. Do you desire that? And then when we come to verse 9, we see the basis for this hope that Paul has for these believers, the basis of our hope. What does he say in verse 9? says, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that verse, that sentence in Greek, the very first word, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Paul is emphasizing it. The very first word is faithful. Faithful is God. That is the ground of our hope. That is why we can know we will persevere in our faith to the end. God's faithfulness to his promises is why he will confirm us to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul is not confident in the Corinthians. He's confident in the God of the Corinthians. And there's one other basis for his confidence in verse 9 there. And that, that is who they're related to, who they were called into fellowship with. They were called into fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word fellowship, it means a sharing in, a participation in. And what are we sharing as the body of Christ, even that troublesome brother or sister, what are you both sharing in? You're sharing in the sonship of Jesus Christ. And will God accept his son? Has God accepted his son? Where is Jesus sitting right now at the right hand of the throne of God? And you, through faith, together with that troublesome brother or sister, 
You are inseparably united to the Son of God. And so God will accept you just as surely as he has accepted his Son. And that's all of grace. So, considering that that brother, that sister that you have trouble with, has also been accepted in God's Son, does it make any sense to be bitter toward them? Did Christ do enough to save you, but not enough to save that brother or sister? In Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Paul wrote this. He said, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So, just summing up, when we see all that God has done for us in the person of his Son, that ought to radically change how we treat one another. We will be quick to see the grace of God at work in our brother's life. And we will be quick to work for the good of that brother and sister. We won't be gossiping about them or grumbling about them or complaining about them. We will be working for their sanctification just as we desire them to be working for our sanctification. And instead of being caught up in our gifting, proud about the gifts that God has given us, instead we will be caught up with who Christ is, proud of who Christ is, and we will want to know him and to make him known. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we have been given in the person of Paul, who really is just a reflection of the life of Christ, that Christ is our example, that he, uh, being in the very form of God, became a man, became a slave, and gave himself, laid himself down for the lives of others. And Lord, that is the attitude that we are to have toward one another. That is the true mark of maturity, a humility that lays oneself down for the glory of God and for the service of their brother and their sister in Christ. So Lord, please mature us. Please conform us to the image of Christ. Help us to follow this example of Paul. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know Christ, who are still dead in sin and without hope, Lord, may you have mercy on their souls. May you open their eyes to see their sin, to see how much they need your grace. And may you make them someone who calls on your name because you promise that you will save all who call on your name in faith. And we thank you for being faithful to that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.